Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to see you. And isn't it good to be together in the room doing Christian education together? I think that's fun. It's been a while. I understand that this has been very difficult to pull off here, uh, as it has been everywhere for a while. Um, let me uh, also remind us uh, who are in the room that we have uh, some people who have signed up uh, in our uh experiencing this uh, from various locations, including California, where it is five minutes until seven. And so California friends and others, uh, we are glad that you are participating. Um, let me tell you just a little bit about, about the background that brings me to the kind of work that I do and what we're going to be doing here, just very briefly. Um, I uh, would say that I've experienced three callings, three fundamental callings in my life. Um, the first was when I was 16 years old, and it was to follow Jesus. The second was when I was 17 years old, and it was to be a pastor. In fact, I was going to be a Southern Baptist pastor, just like Jim. Where is Jim? He, there he is, right? And the glorious, uh, the glorious, uh, life of the Southern Baptist pastor uh, was what I was thinking I was going to be when I was 17 years old, and I have done some of that. Yes, what's the word? Uh, glorious, that's right. Right, filled with honor and glory. Um, and then when I went to seminary, I learned uh, about a discipline called Christian ethics, which really focuses on how Christians follow Jesus more faithfully. Um, how we think about right and wrong, good and bad, what the what the um, the moral dimension of the Christian life, and I've been pursuing that calling since then. So the, let's just say it's been a little while since I was 23 years old, and um, and in that time I have been teaching Christian ethics and doing a fair amount of writing, um, and in the area of Christian ethics, and so so. Um, Jeremy in this room and Paul, we have a visitor today named Paul Knowlton. Paul knows my work pretty well and so does Jeremy. Uh, but what I'm going to be presenting on today is a new book and it's called Introducing Christian Ethics and I have the first copy of it right here. They put a picture of me on the book which is very embarrassing to me. That has never happened before. That only happens to Joel Osteen. Have you seen Joel Osteen books, right? In every Joel Osteen book, he's on the cover. That has never been my experience, but that's what they did this time. So uh, please forgive the publisher for that. Um, so um, this book, Introducing Christian Ethics, is, is my um, probably my last effort to offer an overview introduction to the field of Christian ethics. Uh, your pastor, the glorious honorable Jim Conrad, um, was especially struck by the very last chapter in the book, which I called, Why Following Jesus is So Hard. And so that's what we're going to do over these four weeks. It's a rather provocative title, and you may not even agree that, that following Jesus is that hard. I don't know. I don't know if, how, you would, how you would approach that. Um, so what I'm going to do today is mainly um, get us set up to think about why following Jesus is so hard as I understand it anyway. And we have some slides that are going to now begin to cycle through. Um, to 
To pose the question, why is following Jesus so hard, I think raises the prior question of what is a Christian and what is the purpose of a Christian's life? Um, because I think that even posing the question, why is following Jesus so hard, assumes a prior answer to these questions. So let's go to the next slide. What is the purpose of a Christian? Or what is a Christian? How would one define a Christian? Well, um, a, a kind of a, a common definition would be to say uh, that a Christian is somebody who is a member of a church, right? How do you know if you're a Christian? Well, you joined a church. Well, hopefully not too many of us would think that that would be a sufficient definition of being a Christian, but it is a definition that many people work from. Um, how do you know that you are a Christian? You made the decision to join the church, okay? Um, a little bit more profoundly, one might say that a Christian is a person who has chosen to be baptized, or in some traditions, a Christian is a person who has been baptized by their parents, or through the choice of their parents, has been baptized in one of the churches that baptizes infants. So if you were to ask how many Christians are there in the country of X, one way to determine the answer to that would be to say how many baptized people are there on the rolls of the church, right? Um, but probably most of us, if we are from Baptist traditions, are not going to be satisfied with that quite as a definition, though baptism, at least in the um, adult baptism traditions, means something that at least moves us towards the answer. Okay? So, one definition of a Christian is somebody who is a member of a church. A second would be somebody who is baptized. A third might be, and this is pretty common, how do you know a Christian? It's somebody who, if you ask them what will happen to you when you die, they say, I'm going to go to heaven. That's a Christian. Somebody who is certain about their um, eternal destiny being uh, to live in heaven with Jesus when they die. Now, uh, maybe some of you have had the experience of somebody asking you, coming up maybe even rather aggressively and asking you, do you know if you were to die tonight what, where you would spend eternity? It's a pretty typical evangelistic strategy uh, to, you know, sometimes to scare people into believing, right? Um, but here's three definitions uh, of what is a Christian. Somebody who is a member of a church, somebody who has been baptized, somebody who is confident that if they were to die tonight, they would go to heaven. Am I saying any of those are wrong definitions? I'm not. I'm just saying they're not sufficient definitions, okay? Fourth, um, some people would say that a Christian is a person who believes certain things. They believe certain things, like Jesus is the Son of God, or Jesus died on the cross for our sins, or um, Jesus rose from the dead, or I believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, or any one of a number of things, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Baptist Faith and Message, um, the Augsburg Confession. In many traditions, what defines a Christian is believing a set of doctrines. And in some, in some traditions, the set of doctrines that are to be believed, it's a very long list. And sometimes it keeps growing. I remember um, when I taught at Southern Baptist Seminary, what we were expected to be able to affirm and believe just kept growing. Every year that I was there, there was something added to the list. And actually to teach there, you had to sign um, the founding uh, abstract of principles, but they kept adding things. 
How many of you would say that a Christian is somebody who believes certain things? Does that define your understanding of what it means to be a Christian? I don't think it is definitive, but on the other hand, there are certain things we do believe. And if, if it's central enough, then, um, then it becomes pretty definitive. I think people who say do not believe that Jesus died on the cross or do not believe that that was uh, the fundamental or a fundamental part of, of what it means to be a Christian is, is kind of in a different place. Um, but anyway, I don't think that's everything that we're looking for. So now we move in a little bit more interesting direction in some ways. Fifth, a Christian is a person who performs certain practices, who does certain things that other people don't necessarily do like getting up and reading their Bible every morning or praying every day or uh, I would now I would normally do this interactively but because of um, of wanting to have a steady uh, flow for the audience we'll do we'll think about this more on our own um, some people would say a Christian is defined by uh, how they love people or the level of mercy that they show towards those who are in need. Or a Christian is defined by being forgiving, or by being committed to practices of justice, or by giving to the poor, or by caring for the sick, or by visiting those who are in prison, um, or by um, attempting to live in reconciliation with other people. Do you see how this moves things in a different direction? Here, being a Christian is defined by a way of life by a certain pattern of living. And it is definitely true that the early church understood the, fundamentally what it means to be a Christian um, has a lot to do with a certain set of practices. Um, among them in the early church was refusing to participate in violence. The violence of, um, of, the, of the first century Roman world was extreme. Gladiator games, war, um, routine use of the death penalty, crucifixion, infanticide. Children were routinely uh, just left out to die in the ancient Roman world, and, and the early church just refused to participate in that. That was one way that you knew you were a Christian. So that's something to think about, and that gets us closer to what I want us to think about during this series. And then sixth, um, a sixth possible definition is that a Christian is a person who has made certain commitments, who has committed their life to certain principles, beliefs, or fundamentally to Jesus himself. Let's go to the next slide. A classic Baptist answer, the answer that was presented to me when I was a searching 16-year-old is that a, a Christian is a person who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and has committed to following him as their Lord. And I want us to, to just kind of let that sit for just a second. A Christian is a person defined by two fundamental things. Accepting Jesus Christ as Savior, following Jesus Christ as Lord. Savior and Lord. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Um, when I was, uh, I wandered into a, uh, into a Baptist church when I was 16 years old, literally uninvited 
on a Friday afternoon, and I met the youth minister who happened to be there, and he knew an evangelistic prospect when he saw one. Four days later, I was committing my life to Jesus. And what I was asked to do, and I still think it was a pretty good way to pose the, the, the question, are you prepared to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and to follow him as your Lord? I propose that it would be good to get back to that kind of understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Now let's go back, Julie, to the slide where the six things were mentioned. Okay. Um, if you look at those kind of six common understandings of what it means to be a Christian, I would say that the first four have more to do with accepting Jesus as Savior, and the, second, the last two have more to do with following Jesus as Lord. In fact, my, my overall sense is that most Christians that I know emphasize the accepting Jesus part more than the following Jesus part. And I think it's because the accepting Jesus part is easier. It's easier to say, okay, I believe, number four, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm a sinner and I need to be saved, and I believe that when Jesus died, when he shed his blood on the cross for my sins, my sins were forgiven. I believe that. Um, it's also semi-easy to say, um, I could not earn salvation on my own. Um, I need forgiveness. Um, I'm willing to accept this gift. It's relatively easy to join a church. It's relatively easy to be baptized. It's relatively easy to believe certain doctrines. It's relatively easy to believe that our destination is heaven. Isn't that, isn't that uh, a comforting thought, right? It's harder to do number five and number six, to commit to practices that look like the practices that Jesus taught. It's harder to do that because that's not just something you can do once. It's not just something that you can accept passively. It's something that we have to commit to actively and to train ourselves in like 5K people have to train for a 5K or painters have to learn how to paint. You have to learn how to do these practices. It is the work of a lifetime. And... Um, and it is easier to accept certain doctrines or to believe certain things or to get ourselves baptized or to believe we're going to heaven than to really undertake the disciplined journey of following Jesus as Lord. I remember uh, people said, think of it this way, before you were the boss of your own life, you did what you wanted to do. You were in charge. Now you are giving the throne of your life to somebody else who is now in charge. This means you don't, David, they said to me when I was 16 years old, you don't just get to do what you want to do. You are now going to do what he wants you to do. But that's going to require a lifestyle of obedience, constant change, 
repentance where there is sin and where there is disobedience to the Lordship of Christ. So, our first answer, why is following Jesus so hard, is because it is a whole lot harder to dethrone ourselves and make somebody else Lord. It's a whole lot harder to live Jesus' way than the way our natural instincts would take us or the way our culture would teach us to go. It's a whole lot harder to do that than it is to believe certain things. But I think that the role, that really the, the church is that community of people who having indeed gratefully accepted what God has done for us in Jesus is now together learning how to follow him and make him Lord. Of people that are not autonomous, that are not free to do what we want, but because we have made certain commitments, we are now called to live in certain ways, and we, we gladly take up that call, even though we know it is sometimes very, very hard. This is the picture that I think Jesus actually teaches. Let's look at a few passages that actually say stuff like this, okay? Um, and these are going to come up on the screen now. Um, Jesus, <laughs> it's funny, a lot of times when, um, when we want to try to get somebody to be interested in, in church, we, we try to tell them how appealing it is. Jesus often talked about how hard it was. This passage, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Um, there are versions of this, different versions of this in the Gospels, but Jesus would sometimes say to his closest followers as well as to those who were inquiring, the path that I am taking you on is the path that looks a little bit like a cross. That is, it requires commitment, um, self-denial, and sacrifice. And it requires that one be committed to this path and this person, Jesus, more than any other thing, person, or relationship. Even father and mother, son or daughter. I'm looking at this brand new baby over here. David Wilder, we welcome you. Um, I think of how much these parents love this child. And I think of the shocking quality of Jesus saying, you have to love me more. More. More than anything. More than anyone. More than any idea. More than any place. More than any human being. More than any, anything else that might be good, like status or money or position or power or career or relationship. You must love me more. That is a hard word. You know, there are many stories in the New Testament of people saying, oh, okay, thanks, I think I'm going to head on back home now because I don't really like this very much. So the church is not just a community of baptized people who believe that they're going to heaven and who like being members and who have offering envelopes and stuff. The church is a community of people, ideally, normatively, who understand that this is what we have taken up. Let's look at the next verse. Someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? 
if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And then the person said, okay, which ones? I'd like to have a reasonable list, please. Thank you. And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, also love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, notice that within the Jewish framework within which Jesus taught, it was already understood that to be somebody who pleased God involved a certain set of practices, a way of life, things that you did and things that you didn't do. You worship God and only God. You honored your parents, you, you didn't commit adultery, you didn't steal, you didn't kill. Um, and there were positive statements of that as well. Keep going. Um, the young man said to him, I've, I've, I've done all this. What more do I lack? Um, and then Jesus said, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving for he had many possessions. Now, what we usually do with this passage is talk about, um, well, this isn't really required of everybody, just this one guy. So that's really about what we don't have to do, right? We can, but, but what I want us to take away from this passage today is notice that what Jesus asked of this man was not believe certain things. It was not be baptized. It was not believe you're going to heaven. It was not, here's the list of doctrines. None of it was that. It was, here is the specific thing you're going to have to do to follow me wholeheartedly. For this man, he was going to have to give up his possessions. What is it for us? It's whatever Jesus says it has to be for us. Um, but what I want us to get out of this passage is, Jesus calls us to a path of obedience that can be very costly. Um, and if we soften that message in order to make everybody feel comfortable, then we're not doing what Jesus did, right? So this also raises the question, what must I give up or what path must I choose for me to follow Jesus at this moment? The other thing, interesting thing about following Jesus as a central image is you're never done. You've never arrived. You're on a journey. Jesus is always out ahead of us and always leading us down the road. And the journey isn't over until we return to him in eternity. So it isn't like you, your answer to what following Jesus requires is settled ever. There's always more. There's always more to learn. There's always another leg of the journey. Let's look at the next passage. Um, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, and I always recommend that we spend a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount because it is filled with the way of life of the followers of Jesus, the practices of the followers of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who believes he's going to heaven? No. Nope. Only the baptized person? No. Nope. Only the church members? No. Nope. Hmm. Only the people who can recite the Augsburg Confession? Only the people who have memorized the Heidelberg Catechism? This is fun. This is for our people in California. I thought y'all would like that. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, were we not baptized? That's not there, but I'm putting that in there. Did we not prophesy in your name? cast out demons in your name, do many deeds of power in your name. 
Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Jesus, in, in this bracing teaching in, at, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, basically says, doing the will of the Father as Jesus has taught it is what it means to be his follower. Believing is the ticket into the, you might say, into the arena. The doing is the life. It's the, it's the journey. It is what it means to follow Jesus. Um, and then Jesus says explicitly sometimes that serving him is hard. Let's look at the next passage, Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Picture a, a road. How about picture two roads? One, 285 with like 17 lanes and you know that we drive every day and hope to live through right and then picture just like a little rocky little road off to the side Jesus appears to be saying that most people are on 285 but the road you want to be on to follow him is this narrow little road over there that most people don't ever find like a little country lane I think this would mean, and I, I, this is the perfectly consistent with what Jesus says, many people who think they are on the road of following Jesus are not. We're not the one to judge that for them. Jesus is the one who will ultimately tell us whether we have followed him or not. But the road is wide that leads to destruction. The road is narrow that leads to life. And then the next passage. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns, figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, every bad tree bears bad fruit. So this is a teaching that says it is not profession, it is not verbiage, it's not, it's life. It's character exuded out in way of life that is what Jesus is looking for becoming a good tree bearing good fruit in all the ways that Jesus considers important. And then the, the next one. Do not judge so that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you make you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but not the log in your own eye? Um, and you know, you know the rest of it. But what I think is interesting about this is that a lot of times it is far easier for us to identify the ways other people are falling short in their supposed Christian journey and to be utterly blind to our own shortcomings, failures, and where we're not on the right road. Um, and this is one of the most dangerous things about being a religious person is when we we leverage our religiosity to judge the sins of others and miss our own sins. Because, and so, so this is something I, I want us to say as well, um, following Jesus requires a proper amount of self-awareness. 
about any gap that is existing between what we have promised to do and what we are actually doing. What we have promised to do is follow Jesus and love him above all. If, and that includes obeying his teachings, things like love your enemies and forgive those who offend you and go the second mile um, and um, so on. So to stay on that road requires an ability to honestly look at oneself and say, I think I've gotten off track here. I am ready to repent and get back on the right track. Uh, this is something that my teacher, Glenn Stassen, used to call continuous repentance. It was a major doctrine of Martin Luther, that repentance is not just a one-time thing. Repentance is a way of life for people who are following Jesus because we easily stray off track. All right, so making a turn in this little talk and getting us closer to the book, why is following Jesus so hard? I, I, I sketched out kind of a few, a few things that make it daunting. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Some people would say, well, you know, the main reason following Jesus is so hard is because Jesus has an enemy called Satan. And you know, it is not fashionable for liberal-minded modern people to talk much about Satan or the demonic. Um, but I do believe that there is a supernatural enemy of God. And I do believe, uh, I believe the way C.S. Lewis believed in like the screw tape letters, that there are many forces that, uh, that are bigger than human that seek to knock us off the course. And sometimes these are individual to us, and sometimes they are social and structural. One example in my mind, for example, is the spread of drugs. Just as an example which is eating up many people's lives. But there's lots of other things that one could name. So yes, we have an enemy, okay? Secondly, I believe with the tradition of the church that human beings are sinners. Even after we commit our lives to Jesus, we still have, we're temptable, we still sin, we still lose our way, and sometimes we can badly lose our way. So just because we committed to Jesus as Lord, doesn't mean we can't still sin. In fact, we can. People used to say to me, you know, the more, the more you commit to Christ, the, the more the temptations are going to come at you. So be ready. Third, there are degraded cultural forces that can take us off track. All kinds of cultural forces. How about cultural forces that teach us to hate people who think differently than we do? Right? Um, or cultural forces um, of greed or of indifference. Um, you can, I can think of any number, any number of things. So one thing to, to be aware of is one reason this road is hard and narrow of following Jesus is because we have all kinds of voices in our heads at all times telling us lies, destructive things, corrosive things. Jesus is competing with other voices for the loyalty of every person who claims to be a Christian. Um, and again, how many pastors have said, I have them for an hour a week. Culture has them for the other 167. You know? Fourth, um, 
bad friends and influences, parents were, have always been right to say, watch out for who you hang out with because you will be affected by it. Um, but that's true for adults as well. Who are the voices around us? Who are we relating to and what are their values? Are they helping us to follow Jesus or do they mainly draw us away from Jesus? Next. Oh, is that all I put on there? Boy, I had a longer list in my head. There's so many, but that's sufficient for now, okay? So, so let me, um, let me just kind of sum up what I've tried to say so far, and then I'm going to let you just live with this beautiful diagram for just a little bit, and I'll introduce it, which is the first kind of uh, move directly from the book. I'm trying to say that a Christian is somebody who has committed to following Jesus. And following Jesus is hard because of all kinds of factors that are in us and outside of us. Um, there is no guarantee at any time that we are following Jesus faithfully. I believe that baptism is the beginning of the journey of following Jesus. I believe that church membership is supposed to put us in a community where we are helping one another follow Jesus. That's what it's for. That's why we get together. That's why pastors preach. That's why teachers teach. That's why we sing songs of worship. That's why we pray, so that we might be better equipped to follow Jesus faithfully. We're getting geared up for war, you might say. Geared up for battle. We need each other. We have to be serious about church and about community, about surrounding ourselves with people who are in the same fight that we are in, heading on the same road. Um, I think following Jesus is hard because, because we are easily led astray. But in the book, um, I do something, and this is not the first time uh, Jeremy has seen this, this chart, Paul has seen this chart. Um, I, I retrieve a chart that has been in the tradition of ethics uh, that I studied and now have taught for several decades. And, and so what I, what I do in this chart is to talk about some specific reasons why, um, why and how human beings act as they do and why, and why each one of them can take us astray. So first let me introduce the box and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about the first set of wrong turns we can make and I'll wrap it up at about 10.35, 10.40. This, is, this used to be called the four box diagram. It has been called four dimensions of character. It has been called, Dr. Gushy, are you really gonna make me memorize this box? It's been called, I hate you, Dr. Gushy. It's all of that, right? But here it is. So think of this as the four box diagram and what it is intending to show, uh, can you all see that decently, okay? What it's intending to show is the background factors that um, shape how, I think this would be in the, uh, in the handout too, right? It's on there, good, that's even easier to see. That shape how we function morally, okay? So the, the idea here is picture a person who's trying to decide what does Jesus want me to do in the area of, say, um, how we spend our money. Okay, or say, or whatever you would like it to be. Okay, what does Jesus? What does following Jesus require of me? How do I think about this? Um, 
A naive paradigm would be, well, what you do is you just kind of think it out. So that's the box in the upper right, the way of reasoning box. You just kind of apply the relevant um, rules that, that Jesus teaches or the relevant practices that he taught. Um, you think about the relevant principles of morality that you maybe have been taught along the way or the, the virtues, that is the character qualities that, that are lifted up by Jesus or taught in the Bible. Or remind yourself of what your vision of life is as a follower of Jesus. Just kind of plug it all in Think clearly, and out comes a good decision. Boom. Now, what the overall chart says is that the human mind in its thinking process is only one factor that shapes how people actually act. The others include, in the upper left, and we'll spend a week on each of these, how we see things, perception, our lenses, so this uh, is called the way of seeing box, and we'll go over the details later. But, but one thing that this reminds us is that as we process reality, we don't just cogitate with our head. Before we begin cogitating, we're already looking at reality in certain ways. And how we look at reality preconditions how we reason about things. So like, for example, uh, if we look at reality in a racist way, where people of different skin tones or ethnicities are ranked in a specific hierarchy, that's going to affect how we think about everything. And so, to begin to think better, we would have to stop perceiving reality in that way. And that's true on a number of different things, which, which we'll also talk about. Um, and then on the bottom left, what I think is the most interesting box, we'll spend a week on it, embodied context including um, all the things that are on there, passions and interests, I'll say more about this. But what this basically says is that we are not just thinkers, we are human beings who live in certain contexts. We have relationships, we have passions, we have loyalties, we have friends, we have had life experiences. We are embodied human beings who live in a specific context. All of that affects how we think about things. But we often don't account for that in how we um, might say, check our hearts as we think through things, okay? So, and then on the, the bottom right, basic convictions is, um, is about the core things we actually believe about God, reality, people, and the world. These are supposed to be, for Christians, driven by scripture, but a lot of times I would say they are driven by the world or by alien ideologies that have nothing to do with Jesus. Okay. But what I want to say about the upper right box is simply this. Our reasoning processes in which we use our minds to think through things, our reasoning processes are just as susceptible to sin as everything else. The Enlightenment taught human beings in Western culture to value reason as the highest and most trustworthy um, faculty. If you just think clearly and use your mind rightly, follow principles of logic, follow um, proper uh, decision-making steps, whether empirical reality, studying the world, 
or just kind of rational categories of thought. If we did that, then the outcome would be proper. A lot of what moral philosophy did in the Enlightenment period was to teach people rational decision-making theories. And we, I could go over those, but that would be boring. But anyway, that was the idea. If you just have the right rational decision-making model, you will come out with a good result. But one reason following Jesus is so hard is that our rationality is just as damaged as everything else. Our minds are sinful, not just our hearts. We can reason our way into almost anything if we want to. Um, there's, uh, in the chapter I talk about the amazing human power of rationalization. Rationalization is giving logical sounding reasons for the unreasonable or the wrong, for the immoral. How many times um, have I had, as a pastor, had people do some really skillful rationalizing to explain why they're about to do something really wrong? Um, but I'm not happy in my marriage anymore, pastor. We haven't really been married for years. That's why I'm having an affair with my secretary. We're not really married. Who said? Is that, you know, people can come up with anything. And you know, um, I'll leave you with this. My dissertation was on the Holocaust, especially how Christians behave during the Holocaust. Nazi Germany, the murder of the Jews. And one of the things that I discovered was that Christian people, as well as, and some of them the same, being highly educated people with PhDs, came up with all kinds of ingenious rationalizations for mass murder. People actually taught themselves into believing the unbelievable, that it was really okay to try to kill every single Jewish person in the world. And so, why is following Jesus so hard? Because we can convince ourselves of just about anything if we want to. We can lie to ourselves any given day. Sometimes our culture helps us to lie to ourselves. Sometimes we're quite good at it on our own. I'll say more about this because we're about out of time. But here's what I want us to, to just be thinking about as, as this month progresses. Do we agree, do we believe that following Jesus with every fiber of our being is what we have promised to do if we are Christian? If so, how do we recommit to a seriousness about that work at a higher level than we've ever achieved? And are we willing to get serious about assessing elements within our hearts and lives that take us on the wrong path? One of them is when our mind tells us lies because we want our mind to help us do wrong. This is a routine human thing to do. Um, the human heart and the human mind, the, the scripture says, desperately wicked. We need Jesus not just to show us the path, but also to make us able to follow that path, which includes assessing our vulnerabilities with an honesty that is sometimes very hard to manage. So I'll stop there, Jim, and um, do you want to move into a, a little bit of Q&A? Do we have time for a, a couple questions? So would anybody like to reflect or ask a question on what I've said today? Yeah, John? 
Um, for those who are uh, uh, listening on stream, uh, John was asking about um, the heart, why, uh, focus on the heart rather than the mind. It all has to come from the heart. That is true. Um, and one of the things that I love about the Baptist tradition is that it has always emphasized heart religion. Everything about following Jesus must come from the very center of our being, the heart. Um, and and the heart must be given fully to Jesus, so therefore the decisions that follow would reflect that. I, I guess I would also say that, whatever we mean by the heart, it's not necessarily that beating organ, but that kind of center of the self, you know, the soul or the essence of the person. Even, even the heart can be led astray. Even the heart of the committed Christian can be led astray if we allow um, temptations to take residence there. Right, so um, I, I guess I don't ever want us to think that even a heartfelt believer is immune from being tempted away from the path that we're supposed to be on. But it is definitely true that a, a cognitive-only religiosity, kind of brain-only, mind-only, uh, is not going to be enough. Um, it has to go to the very center of our being. And that heart, as the scripture itself says, must be constantly renewed, constantly drawn closer. Confession, prayer, um, adoration, worship, everything that helps our heart to be where it needs to be for us to, to be on, uh, in the place where we can follow Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah. Anybody else? Kim. I do. Um, many people that I teach or have a chance to pastor along the way have been scalded by judgmental Christians saying, you're clearly off track and now we're going to correct you, right? One of the, and, and sometimes all that is about is that people disagree with other people about what the Christian life requires, right? Um, so sometimes it's just really difference of opinion rather than correction, but it's pitched as correction and it's very painful. There are legitimate differences of opinion about specific things, right? Um, and the church has been arguing for 2,000 years. Um, I do think there's a tender balance in, a, in an intimate Christian community. We know each other well enough to, to be caring for each other on the journey. So I've always been most grateful in my Christian journey when I've had people around me who could say corrective or, or concerned things to me because they love me. 
But you know, it's not just everybody. You have to invite a relationship like that. You have to want to be in a relationship like that. Hopefully, a Christian marriage is like that. Hopefully, good Christian friendship is like that. I'm concerned about your attitude. You seem to be settling into anger. Are you okay? You know, things like that, right? Um, we need that. Um, I think that's part of what's supposed to happen in church life. It's very hard to manage. But because we so easily go off the path or we're so easily beset by temptations and by struggles, sometimes we need people. I don't even worry about the losing salvation thing because I, I, in the sense that I don't think, I mean, I think it is possible for, for professed Christians to so lose their way that it is hard to see they seem like they lost the path a long time ago but ultimately I know that that judgment is up to God and so I think humility about other people's journey is always appropriate God is the one who makes those judgments um, but the fact that people can badly lose their way is a fact and I want to have people in my life who want me to who want to help me stay on the right path but who know how to do it in a way that that um, that helps rather than hurts Paul Heart versus mind, heart versus head. Mm -hmm. and, and you know, um, I do. I do think that the human being—we are what we are. It's all of it. It's our rational capacity. It's our. It's our emotions. It's our passions. It's our. It's our character, it's how that character manifests in actions, all of that is real. Um, um, but I hope that your main takeaway this morning is a reminder that, that the Christian life as Jesus himself seemed to teach it is a journeying path of following him as Lord. So I think I'll close in prayer by asking us to think about that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you not only died on the cross for our sins, but you also invited us to a life of following you. And we know that that life of following you is beautiful, and it is the most fulfilling life available on this planet, but that it is also hard, and that our hearts and our minds can lead us astray. Um, so maybe... Maybe through what has been said today, maybe you've been nudging us a little bit back towards a serious following. Um, and we know you're always out ahead of us, and we know there are mysteries on this path, and we don't always see clearly or think well. We don't always get it right. Thank you that you always welcome us back. Thank you, Lord, for this church, a community of people trying to follow you. And help us um, to be who you want us to be. And everywhere where Christians are listening today, I will help all Christians to find the community that supports us uh, and one another in the journeying, the life of discipleship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.